everyone. Welcome to If Then. We're coming to you from Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. We're recording this on the afternoon of Tuesday, May 14th. First of all, I'd like to welcome my co-host for this week, Max Reed. Max is a writer and editor at New York Magazine, where he writes Life in Pixels, a column about the internet and, as he puts it, other signs of the apocalypse. He's also the former editor-in-chief of Gawker. Max, thanks so much for co-hosting. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, so on today's show, we're going to talk about Chris Hughes' apostasy. I always have a hard time pronouncing that word. (laughs) I think I said it right. I think you got it right. Okay, He uh, he was a founder at Facebook and had a very long, I think like 6,000 word or so article in the New York Times uh, at the end of last week, I think it was Thursday, about why Facebook should be broken up into smaller pieces. And then we're going to talk to Catherine Lowe, a researcher and a consultant specializing in online harassment. Uh, And she's going to talk to us about how social media platforms should or could be designed differently in order to prevent the spread of misinformation and harassment. And as always, we'll end with Don't Close My Tabs, some of the best things we saw on the web this week. That's all coming up on If Then. So for news this week, we are going to talk about Chris Hughes. Uh, In a 6,000-word op-ed in the New York Times on Thursday, Facebook co-founder Chris Hughes posited that the company, which has made him super fucking rich, should now be broken up. He said, the vibrant marketplace that once drove Facebook and other social media companies to compete, to come up with better products, has virtually disappeared. This means there's less chance of startups developing healthier, less exploitative social media platforms. It also means less accountability on issues like privacy. The solution to this, you says, is to increase competition. And the best way to do that is to break up the company he helped build. He says this should be accompanied by creating a new federal regulatory agency that has expertise in tech companies and, you know, all the problems that they create. He also recommends a privacy law, like the sweeping one that went into effect in Europe last year, the General Data Protection Regulation, right, GDPR, and rules for acceptable speech on social media, which he admits might seem un-American. He gets to the solutions at the very bottom and doesn't dedicate as much time to them as he does to this kind of long diagnosis of what went wrong and why Facebook needs to be broken up. Uh, But he certainly made the rounds after he published this very long op-ed. I think, was he on like every news show? I feel like I just heard his voice all constantly on Sunday. It was just nonstop. Yeah. I couldn't turn on TV, radio, a podcast, you know, any way I tried to like imbibe information without more hues. It was definitely a PR blitz. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I was happy, though, to see uh, headlines being made about the problem of Facebook obviously being too big to regulate itself and perhaps being so big that it needs to have its power reduced and to to be broken up. I think it's a a super important issue, and it's one that's very easy to kind of fall asleep (laughs) listening to. And so we need to keep hammering it and and continue to talk about it so that way the issue doesn't kind of escape our consciousness uh, and we just let it continue to grow year after year. So I'm happy to see it make headlines again. Uh, that's for sure. Yeah. And, you know, I will say, you know, I have my problems with the op-ed in one way or another, but like he doesn't pull his punches. I mean, he's very clear. This is a guy who was quite close with Mark Zuckerberg and he's very clear where the fault lies, which is sort of in Facebook's management and in Facebook's, you know, board of directors. And he is um, specific about his solutions. And um, as you said, it's, you know, it's 6,000 words or whatever. I mean, he really went there, um, which is like more than you can say for a lot of rich guys who are trying to, who want to call out their, their they're even richer friends. Right. I mean, we were talking about his motivation, like maybe he has a book out or there's political aspirations, but I think he actually cares. Um, I did 
read it, you know, I, I felt like I did read Concern um, and and really thinking that there needs to be some sort of political solution or, you know, we need policymakers to step in here because uh, the market is not going to solve this in some way, which is interesting because he is saying that we need a healthier marketplace, right? Yeah. Um, that that we need better antitrust. Yeah. I mean, I, this it's interesting because he's really getting on board, as, as anybody who's been reading or writing about tech knows, he's getting on board sort of the big regulation, the big sort of regulatory solution train, which is right now, which is antitrust uh, law, which the idea is that we can bring antitrust law to bear on companies like Facebook and Google, which um, arguably are monopolies or duopolies in various fields and break them up. And as as Hughes argues in the piece, that breaking them up will uh, increase competition and uh, thereby sort of increase the attention that the companies are paying to things like user privacy, data protection, uh, even sort of the speech issues that arise around there. Um, you know, I mean, sort of privately, I was wondering, Hughes used to own The New Republic, uh, the former editor-in-chief of which, Frank Four, recently released a whole book about uh, sort of the tech industry, arguing along a very similar line to Hughes. And I was thinking, I, I, I bet that Frank Four and Chris Hughes are having a conversation about uh, the tech industry and what needs to be done. Right. And, you know, also people who kind of responded to this article did frequently say, or I, I read this over and over again, that antitrust alone won't solve this. We do need adjacent privacy laws. We need, a, like, rules to also, you know, buttress these companies that, that once we divide them up, they'll still be super, super big. And that doesn't mean that they're going to, like, act necessarily any better. Um, and, you know, with, with AT&T, once that was broken up, it really just the name on the bill changed. No policies changed necessarily. So Yeah. I mean, I think one thing to consider is, especially around something like privacy, you know, there isn't really a mass political movement to increase or improve privacy. So the idea that um, by creating economic competition around privacy, it's going to do better, just doesn't ring true to me. It seems really unlikely that if people aren't writing letters to their Congress people, marching in the streets to demand better privacy, that they're all of a sudden going to start choosing one service over another based on its privacy offerings. Right now, in 2019, it just doesn't seem to be a top-of-the-mind issue for the vast majority of the American public. So this is something that I've written about and thought about a lot. As people who listen to the show know, I worked on you know, privacy law and, and, and grassroots advocacy before getting into journalism. And one thing that really struck me after Snowden was that I think it took like a week for there to be a petition that got hundreds of thousands of signatures. And then, you know, a few weeks after that, a march was planned. And then like a month after or a couple months after, there was this big action where, you know, Congress was flooded with phone calls. And basically all of these groups that are focused on Internet privacy, that know how to rally uh, the internet to uh, to take political action and to push for political change, which we've seen success with, like with SOPA and PIPA back in the day, and more recently with net neutrality, even though that was reversed. We do know that internet advocates know how to create policy change, which is incredibly difficult to do. They were silent after Cambridge Analytica, or not silent, but really did not create a, a campaign. There was no big push to Congress. I had sources on the Hill telling me that they were not getting phone calls from constituents. And it's very, very hard to imagine Congress creating privacy laws or creating you know, any sort of regulatory reign in on these companies without, uh, without some wind in their sails. And, and that really amounts to constituent pressure. Uh, so, yeah, there's not a big campaign. There's, I don't feel like there's really like a catchphrase. Uh, Surveillance Capitalism is a great book, but it's like very long. And there's not like a meme that people are picking up on and saying that this is what I want right now. So. No, I mean, I think it makes sense to think about the Hughes uh, op-ed as sort of long as it was and as 
public as it was and as big as the PR blitz um, is really about uh, one particular rich elite talking to a bunch of other rich elites that uh, and I don't just mean that in the sense that he was literally sort of writing it more or less as an open letter to his old friend Mark Zuckerberg, but also just in the sense that this is not right now a set of issues that are going to uh, involve mass political movements. That this is to the extent that we're going to see regulation, it's going to occur sort of on the level of uh, political activists, of politicians, and of business leaders um, duking it out, you know, in op-ed pages and in the legislature. Um, and I think that's going to that's going to result in probably very different kinds of privacy laws than we would be having if we really had people, as as we're saying, marching in the streets. But uh, it does give me a small amount of hope, at least, that there is some enough change in elite opinion that one of the founders of Facebook can stand up and say, uh, you know, we, we goofed up. Uh, let's let's try and fix this. It certainly matters. You know, uh, I do wonder uh, if this kind of guy from the tech industry becoming a reformist thing is is uh, it feels like a tr- it's becoming a trope in some way too like i've like we've seen this happen uh, the guy that invented the like button uh, what's his name justin he he was on the show over a year ago uh tristan harris yeah tristan harris this is a theme that we're seeing and i don't think it's it's bad i mean clearly it's 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 a good thing that people are are calling for for change when something is broken especially people who are in power uh but i'm curious what the next move is going to be um so uh we will continue to follow this but this was certainly a big splash when we come back, we'll have an interview with Catherine Lowe, a researcher specializing in online harassment. She used to work for Instagram. Now she's with a nonprofit that works with journalists on disinformation issues called Medan. There, she leads the content moderation team. So often we talk about policies and governance when it comes to addressing trash on social media platforms, but it's less frequent that we talk about design. And that's what Kat is an expert on. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank, USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Our guest today is Catherine Lowe. Catherine leads the content moderation team at MeDan, a nonprofit that works on misinformation and journalism issues. She's also a visiting researcher at University of California, Irvine, where she specializes in online moderation and harassment. Catherine Lowe, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. So when when we think about designing a social network to increase user safety or reduce harassment or to ensure it's not a haven for the spread of hate and disinformation, what are the first things that you think need to be considered? Like, what are kind of the pillars that you revolve your thinking around? Um, I think the first thing is every time a product comes out for a platform is how can it be abused? Uh, I think there's a term that we kind of have thrown around is like abusability instead of usability. And I think what's really important is understanding how things that ostensibly seem really innocent can be used in very, very creative ways to harass people. Um, and even even moderation tools can be abused. So, you know, uh, reporting how you can report posts. People can, you know, mobilize to report things that they don't like to imitate, you know, good faith reporting and get people taken down um, kind of unfairly. So I think 
abusability of tools is really important. And then thinking about things that ostensibly don't violate policy um, and, kind, and those kinds of behaviors and seeing how they can either lead to incitement of, of crowds, uh, how they can lead to radicalization or how they can sort of creep into things that violate policy, because those things are really hard to um, to moderate uh, at scale or, or operationalize it in a way that you can enforce it consistently. It sounds a little bit like when you talk about abusability that uh, it reminds me of security testing um, on big systems where you hire hackers essentially to try and break your system. I mean, it sounds a little bit like one way of thinking about abusability would be like what what would a troll do? What would the the most masterful possible troll or you know uh, abuser or harasser try to do with the system? Should Facebook hire Milo? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I actually have joked about being a social pen tester. Uh, for that exact reason, uh, because you know, for for many many years, including years as a teen, I was on 4chan and and um, uh, spaces like that. And I guess I've moved over to this side, but uh, it, it is kind of that knowledge and um, working with targets of harassment and doing a lot of crisis support work that I've gotten to see how people can abuse things. Um, and in that way, I, it means that I can use that knowledge. I can use my, my own impulses to know how to stalk people <laughs> to, to, uh, to demonstrate how these systems can be abused. Um, and I think that's a really important skill set that, uh, you know, in Silicon Valley, they haven't really developed a lot of standards for yet. I mean, one way to deal with all of the um, extra trolls on 8chan or whatever, maybe we should all just give them jobs at Facebook and tell them, try to break this system. <laughs> yeah, well, as long as we don't give them access to user data. Yeah, that would be the first step. This is what the FBI does with hackers, right? Um, so I, I think that's a good question. And so, you know, thinking about Facebook now, Facebook has been talking a lot about transitioning from the feed to private groups. Uh, and those things are abused in very, very different ways. Uh, so I guess I'm, I'm curious how, how are private groups abused? Because I feel like we know pretty well about how the feed is abused. There's like misinformation that goes viral and, you know, junk websites that are created that are monetized after things go viral. And this is a very different abusability questions, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think one thing to keep in mind is that Facebook can still monitor private groups. They can still intervene in that sense. Um, and they have on some level been working on these issues through WhatsApp, where you do have these very large WhatsApp groups, but the worst part is that they are completely encrypted. So there is no way to monitor them the way that you can for Facebook groups. So I think Facebook has been contending with issues like this before. Um, and I do think it means that they will need to rely more on proactive moderation measures, because I think with the traditional viral content, uh, you could rely on user reports um, and very clear signals. So I think it's almost a matter of having to find more creative modes of moderation, um, of detecting um, abusive behavior. And so I think they, I think uh, that's why there's this big move to uh, automating detection of uh, hate speech, harassment, and things like that. But um, a big concern there is that a lot of machine learning researchers do not have a, a strong grasp of sociology. 
I mean, you're talking about uh, sort of moderation as one level of dealing with abusability or one level on which a social network is obligated to handle problems of misinformation, problems of harassment. Um, I'm also interested, though, in sort of on the structural level, like when when you sit down to design, say, a group chat application or a, a social network or whatever, um, what kinds of decisions, uh, you know, would, would you suggest somebody take into place? If, if I asked you to consult with me on my new group chat app, um, what kinds of solutions or what kinds of um, advice would you be giving me to ensure that it was uh, less able to be a a locus of of all the bad things that we associate with social networks? Gosh, well, I I think what's tough here is that um, the ways that you deal with harassment can be very different than the ways that you deal with misinformation or propaganda. And sometimes the design solutions for each of these problems run up against each other. And uh, same with privacy. So you see like a big tension between like preserving privacy and being able to monitor posts. And so we're really trying hard to work on this in Silicon Valley. I think part of it, the problem though right now is that we're working with huge systems that you know have rigid infrastructures and we have to, to shape whatever we have now. If we build it from the ground up, I'd say that um, focusing towards locality where it's, you know, people are focused on the their particular group and not spreading between groups as much. I, I really think it depends on the circumstance. It, it's hard to say that there's like a catch-all um, design ethos for making systems not abusable. Can you say more about the sort of tension between uh, like harassment and misinformation as, as, as two um, problems where there's sort of a solving one may make the other one worse? Um, yeah. So I think, for example, uh, thinking about defamation where, let's see, I, I think you can have people who are spreading misinformation, um, but the ways that people can counter it um, w- within the public. So people are saying this person is uh, saying false things and and uh, they they shouldn't have a platform. I think it's really important for the public to be able to to express, um, you know, a kind of dissent or or pushback. Uh, however, that kind of pushback also uh, resembles harassment behavior in a lot of ways that could potentially violate policies in the way that they're currently written. So, do you act against the people who are um, sort of doing some light harassment be- or something that resembles harassment or can actually be harassment? But for the goal of, um, you know, pushing back against misinformation, or do you let them harass? Um, and where are you drawing these li- where are you drawing these lines? One thing that you you brought up previously was the idea of of localizing or, or localism as as perhaps one way of kind of mitigating the problems of both uh, disinformation and harassment. Is that because when you have a smaller group or a more local group, there's just more accountability in general? Yeah, I, I think there's this problem where if you try to have global standards, it's very difficult to situate it to local contexts or cultures. Or even like local in terms of your interest group, I mean, too, right? Like Right. Um, like I think a hobbyist community has very different concerns than a political organizing community um, and, and very different policies as a result of that. And I think, you know, this, this moving to groups kind of sensibility speaks to uh, the fact that we do have local norms and that we and that they they determine very much how a community is healthy or not. Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking here of the idea of context collapse where, you know, a, a big public feed like Facebook or Twitter, you know, if you're on Facebook, you're probably friends with not just 
you know, your friends, but maybe friends from a bunch of different groups and also your family and maybe even people you work with. And all of a sudden, the question of what you feel comfortable saying in front of all those groups becomes a very fraught one. Whereas if you're able to sort of um, section off a bunch of different groups into smaller local group chats, as you're saying, um, you know, the, the sort of parameters of what's allowable to say in front of your boss and your coworkers is obviously going to be very different from what you might say in front of your college friends. So you end up uh, with a slightly better sense of what's sort of what's okay. I mean, you, you can navigate those those contexts a little bit more easily. Right. No, I, I think Facebook for the longest time has had this uh, feature that allows you to broadcast to different people in your friend li- friends list. But I think there there has been a usability perspective or a usability problem where people forget to designate different lists or it's just a lot of labor to create those lists in the first place. And so I think this is a, a, a easier way that maps more closely to how people think of their different social groups. It's you, in a way, almost physically join a separate group rather than create these lists of people that you talk to. Right. So, like, I um, when I post something to Facebook, I'll like exclude the five people who I owe emails to and my editor who I <laughs> I'm late to. And it's like, oh yeah, I'm not on social media. I'm like working really hard and super busy. <laughs> But that's a lot of work. Um, But I guess one downside of going into groups, though, and and maybe this isn't a downside or maybe there's a way that this can still happen. But when things go viral, it's like for me, when I have a post that goes viral, it's super annoying. I don't like it. But, But it's also really good when things go viral because things come to my attention that I wouldn't have learned about otherwise. It's a great way to elevate, like, marginalized voices and stories that, like, don't immediately have a platform or a microphone in in mainstream outlets. Like, virality is a a good thing in many ways. It doesn't necessarily signal that something is genuine or or good that's going viral. But uh, when we go into these group spaces, we lose virality. And, you know, there's good and bad there. But I'm curious, what are your thoughts on that? Or, Or do we not necessarily lose virality. I guess stuff can still be shared. We just don't know how popular it is. Part of things going viral is seeing that count and being like, whoa, this is like, people really like this dog or whatever. Yeah. I mean, I think people have argued that the segmentation is happening already because instead of groups, Mm. you have social networks that are formed by who you follow and who you don't. And the people, if you don't follow people, well, with the exception that Twitter, I think is just showing you things you don't want to see these days. But um, for the most part, you do only see things in your feed that you've already kind of consented to seeing where you're like, okay, I'm going to follow these people because I want to see this kind of content. So you don't really see necessarily a lot of alt-right content if you're liberal, for example, unless somebody who who you're following is going to retweet it. Um, And in that case, that kind of just imitates when people in a group share something that they've seen somewhere else. I I mean, I think that there will be uh, some changes. I do think that virality, that does expose a wider range of people to content. Like you will lose some of that with groups, but I do think a lot of that structure is still preserved because I think groups are just sort of a formalization of what's happening already. And I think what's the benefit of, of groups is that, you know, unlike a viral post on Twitter, for example, where you have one comment section in groups, when things get shared around, you have different comment sections for every community that you're in. So you don't actually, it's kind of like, it's not exactly context collapse, but it's, you know, how a lot of people will start to have like entire battles in the comment sections for a post. And like, that's the only kind of uh, discussion that can emerge. Whereas in groups, you can have a bit more nuanced conversations where people have 
certain agreements about what's acceptable or not in the conversation uh, for their particular group. Right. I mean, and look, also, I will admit, I use groups to workshop my jokes so (laughs) that I can be funny in one group chat and then I can make the joke even better for a different group chat. So I have a whole a whole host of people to just run run drafts by. Um, one question I sort of have about virality is um, WhatsApp has increasingly been named as a vector of misinformation, um, of fake news, sort of at the root of some instances of mob violence. And I'm, I'm interested in what your understanding of like how, how WhatsApp works and why it is that WhatsApp in particular seems to be, you know, brought up with such frequency around that kind of bad virality. Um, I think that people are picking up this mode of social media more often these days where Instead of Facebook, where you have big social network feed posts, you do have your social network in these various groups that you choose to be in on WhatsApp. And people theorize a lot about why that is. Some people think that, like, you know, teens now want a different mode of socializing than they've seen with Facebook and Twitter. Not just teens. I mean, speaking as a 33-year-old, I want a different mode of socializing than I see on Facebook and Twitter. Like, anything different would be great. Yeah, well, we've seen what happens. What can happen. Right. (laughs) Um, I guess one question I like one thing I was thinking about WhatsApp is that it's sort of the most frictionless of a lot of group chat apps. It is the one that seems most easy to kind of share with other people to like end up in groups, as you were saying, end up in groups with people you don't know necessarily or new new context. So it seems like maybe they haven't quite calibrated the balance between, you know, this tension we were talking about before um, about, you know, the spread of information and, and how it can increase the chances that a platform is used for misinformation, say. Yeah, I think it doesn't help that. So WhatsApp, I'm pretty sure you can have hundreds of, I think it's 256. I don't know the exact number anymore, but you can have hundreds of people in a WhatsApp chat. And I think that is very much like larger Facebook groups that people use to coordinate things. Because I think a lot of the time people think of WhatsApp as like, oh, it's you and your five friends. Um, But you can be in these like broader groups that are oriented around topics. um, And that can be used to spread things around. It's I think it's very similar to email chains, you know, like back when you could have like forward, 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 re forward, forward, you won't believe this. Um, And then there's the call to action at the end of the email that's like forward this to five people that you know. Um, I think that there's a similar dynamic on WhatsApp. So I'm curious what you think or how you think companies will be able to continue to mint money (laughs) off these platforms once we go into private groups, right? I mean, clearly the newsfeed has just been this tremendously profitable, you know, engagement tool for Facebook and, and, and other social media apps that have congregated around the central feed idea. But uh, it seems like a very different economic model once they try to shepherd people into smaller, more local spaces. I, I think that personalized ads will thrive regardless in these circumstances. Okay. Oh, no. <laughs> Bummer. <laughs> yeah. Um, because it, it turns out that your social graph tells most social media companies, everything they need to know about you, um, because it indicates like what you're interested in, what kind of age range you might be in, you know, what kind of events you're likely to go to, because most things about you can be determined by who your friends are and how you socialize with them. So, you know, that's, that's something to consider. Uh, and then I think, um, another element is that I think there is a growing trend of like sort of paying for content directly where you have things like Patreon, where, you know, creators go and just have their fans pay a monthly amount because they want to specifically support that creator. And I think uh, there's an increasing opportunity for that kind of relationship, which 
it's tough because there are a lot of like economic limitations, especially for those who it, who don't have credit cards. Uh, and so this is very limited to a certain section of more uh, developed countries um, and who, who fit in within the infrastructure of like pay for content platforms. But I do think that that is a very healthy mode of engagement and and uh, monetization where you know it's not the data that's being collected about you. It's it's simply that you see a creator and you pay them their money directly rather than paying for your data. Okay, Kat, thank you so much for joining us. This was such a great conversation. Yeah, thank you. One final quick break and then don't close my tabs. Some of the best things we've seen on the web this week. Okay, don't close my tabs time. I always feel funny saying that. Uh, But Max, what do you want to share with our listeners this week? Uh, I want to share a video I found on Twitter um, by a comedian named Alyssa Limperis. That's L-I-M-P-E-R-I-S. Um, Alyssa does this series of videos in which she, uh, of a character she calls mom, but which is obviously a very loving impersonation of her own mother, an Italian-American woman from uh, outside Boston. <laughs> um, and they're just, uh, I'm not going to try and do it. I would embarrass myself over a podcast, especially sort of, you know, in the shadow of Alyssa's impersonation. But I think anybody with a mother will recognize this mother character but especially if you're from the northeast like i am you will really recognize this mother character and i really the reason i'm, I'm bringing this up the the thing in particular i want to recommend is there is a piece of genius observational comedy in this that i've been thinking about for days now which is why it was the first thing on my mind when i was trying to figure out what to choose which is uh the she she picks up um some bread some gift cards to Panera, Uh the mother in the video, and she says, oh, we should get some of these. Uh, You always want to go to Panera's. (laughs) And calling Panera Panera's to me is like, it's like a, I don't know how to describe it. I I felt like I had a a Proustian Madeline moment. It just feels like the most mom thing in the entire world to call Panera, to add an apostrophe and an S to make it possessive, as though there was somebody named Panera. Or it's like, or the Panera, right? (laughs) Right, or it's it's, it's, it's one or the other, so the Panera or Panera's. Like John Panera started it. And is doing it. Anyway, I, I recommend <laughs> Alyssa LaParis' mom videos. Go to her Twitter account and uh, check them out. It's so good. Yeah, well, it's good to recommend positive things that people are using these platforms for instead of um, <laughs> the, the hate that I usually dive into for work. Uh, and I actually want to recommend uh, your piece, Max. I really enjoyed reading it. Um, I'm still thinking about it. I'm like, because we, we talked about it before the show. Max has a, a piece out. I think it came out this weekend and then online today uh, in the in New York Magazine, the New York Magazine, listen to me, um, <laughs> called Group Chats Are Making the Internet Fun Again. And it is, he Max believes that uh, group chats are the future and the current and we just don't realize it yet. And it's it's way more positive and, and personal. Uh and yeah, I don't know. I guess what what when did you realize that that this was the direction? Capital D. <laughs> uh, you know, it happened when I started when I got when I upgraded to whatever iOS it was where they started doing screen time stuff and I realized how much of my screen time was now being spent not in Twitter or Facebook but in iMessage and to a lesser extent Slack um, whereas I was confessing to you before in addition to having my work chat I also have a group of friends that I Slack with all the time mm-hmm. um, and I was sort of like oh my god like this is like this is what what would have just two or three years ago have been devoted entirely to social media apps is now devoted almost entirely to like that my time is devoted way more to these group chat apps. And, you know, I'd like, it was one of those things where for me, once I started thinking about it, there was all these really obvious reasons why group chats were 
preferable to me at this moment in my life, like, and especially after the last few years of the way social media has gone. Um, and then, so for then for Mark Zuckerberg to walk out on stage at F8 a couple weeks ago and say, Facebook is going toward groups was like, okay, well, if Facebook's doing it, then obviously I like, I can't be the only one who's doing it. Right. No, I mean, my friends are all in a ton of group chats. They try to put me in them and I try to eject myself and then they're like, ha ha, put me back in. <laughs> and then I mute them. And then I'm this person that you describe towards the end of the piece, the wait, what person, the what, what person that is not following along well, yeah. Uh, yeah. because I'm just busy throughout the day. And then I look at it and I'm like, oh, man. I mean, <laughs> look, there's there's it takes all kinds to really make a successful group chat. You know, it's it's like a. So you think I'm a good I'm a good character, too. That's like a good, stable character. It's really <laughs> okay. it's important to have that friend in the group chat. Yeah, absolutely. And I would look, I would say like I'm my my partner, my my girlfriend is a um, is a is a deep mute, like will not participate in any group chats that you put yeah, her in. That's really me. I'm a muter. Yeah. And, you know, God bless her. Like, I love her to death. I don't understand it. I don't understand the inability to riff with your friends about the most minute, stupid stuff in the middle of the day. But if you can do that, you're probably way more successful than I am. <laughs> I mean, so I do have like I do text my friends, but it's like it's personal. It's intimate. It's like, here's something mean or funny or mean and funny, <laughs> you know, really quick throughout the day, all day. Uh, and texting for me is like for logistics or to be really funny. And that's it. And um, it's hard for me to keep up with it as like a social, <laughs> like a group activity. Yeah, I understand. But uh, I do see a lot of people doing it. And I know, like I said, because I I have them muted. <laughs> and also it makes me feel more popular than I am because my iPhone has like over 50 on-read messages that are just me ignoring group chats. And so when people, <laughs> when I take a screenshot of a message someone sent me to send someone else because I'm gossiping or something, <laughs> they'll be like, whoa, you have 60 on-read messages. And I'm like, oh, it's just like, me ignoring group chats. See, everybody wins. You, you're getting something out of it even if you're not participating. <laughs> Yeah, I'm getting social capital from that. That's the core of all social networks. So, so if you're getting social capital out, it's absolutely a social network. Right, right. <laughs> um, so I, I recommend it. it. It's definitely a lot to think about. And, and it is a trend that's happening. And, and I think it's something that for people who do participate in it with more fluency than I do, actually a source of joy. And that's rare. So, um, <laughs> so you know, always for more joy in the world. Uh, and that does it for our show this week. You can email us at ifthen at slate.com. Send us your tech questions, show and guest suggestions, or just say hello. You can follow me and Max on Twitter as well. I'm at April Laser, and Max is Max underscore Reed on Twitter. Thanks again to our guest, Catherine Lowe. Uh, you can follow her on Twitter at lolcat, L-A-W-L-K-A-T. Uh, and thanks to everyone who has left us a comment or review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you use to listen. We really appreciate your time. If Then is a production of Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. If you want more of Slate's tech coverage, sign up for the Future Tense newsletter. Every week you'll get news and commentary on how tech advances are changing the world in ways small and large. Sign up at slate.com slash future news. Our producer this week is Samantha Lee. Thanks to Ghana D. Joe Johnson here in Oakland who engineered at YR Media. And yeah, thanks so much to Max. Max will be with us at the end of the month, too, for uh, the last uh, show in May. I can't wait. <laughs>